Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. I think one of the biggest problems that we have when messages are preached is that we tend to start thinking of the other people that need what's being said. And we're all guilty of it. Don't, don't act like you don't ever do that. You hear, you hear something that's being preached and say, ooh, they needed that. I hope they're listening. I hope they're paying attention to that. They need that. Right? Sometimes we feel conviction in our own soul, and hopefully we work on it after that. But I think we often find ourselves thinking things like, what this church really needs is, right? Or that person really needs to. We, we've all been there. I, I think we've all sat in a message and thought those things at some point or other, and hopefully it's not something that you do all that often. Hopefully you sit there and think, what I need is. Because what I want to ask you, what I want you to think about this morning, and what I want to ask you is a very personal question this morning. Of course, nobody's perfect. Nobody's ever going to be perfect until we finally get to heaven. But the title of my message this morning is in the form of a question, and that is this. What type of church would this church be if all the members were just like thee? What type of church would this church be if all its members were just like thee? Look what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 3. And verse number 20, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. By the way, it's not exceedingly abundantly. I hear people say that all the time. There's a few things to me that are pet peeves that, that, that come from the word of God, and that's one of them. People say, God wants to bless you exceedingly abundantly. It's not what the Bible says. It says exceeding abundantly, right? Another one is when people say Psalms 25. It's not Psalms 25. It's Psalm 25, right? <laughs> Uh, there's, there's a lot of things like that that people just, they don't think about it and they're not, they're not thinking about what they're saying, but I, I like to use the words that the Bible use, uses and it says exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. By the way, uh, you've, I'm sure you've seen that there is no buildings next door anymore, right? There was a couple houses there, a garage and they're gone. They're completely gone and they, they, they left their vehicles in the parking lot to prove that they've been here, right? Uh, making it difficult for everybody to snake around in the parking lot and everything else, but uh, you know, that means they're getting closer to doing what they want to do with this property, and I, that means I don't know how long this building is going to be here. I mentioned it last week. This is not a time to get nervous. It's a time to get excited, because that means God's going to have to do something soon, and I'm looking forward to it. I, don't, I still don't know what it is. We're, we're doing everything we can to try to reach out and find a, a place, but, uh, you know, the, the, the property that's around here is $5 million, right? I mean, that's, that's about the average price of what we've seen. But $5 million to God is no different than $5 to us, right? And whether he gives us $5 million or gives us the property, he can do it however he wants to, right? And that's exactly what he's talking about when he says exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. When I sit down and start thinking, I've said $5 million in my head so many times that it doesn't even sound like that much money anymore, you know? <laughs> I mean, if I made $5 million, I'd probably be like, eh, $5 million, you know? I've said it so many times in my own head about how much this, this property is and how much they're asking for it around here. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a large amount of money, right? And if it, if, if, if it wasn't a large amount of money, then please come see me after church. I'd like to talk to you, right? But uh, it, the Bible says that he can do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. But I think, the, I think the, the entire purpose of that passage especially comes down to verse number 21, and honestly, I think we could say that this is the theme of the entire Bible, and especially of the New Testament, but this in verse 21, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, amen. Him, unto him be glory in the church 
by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Bring it to a more personal level and ask yourself this question this morning. What type of church would this church be if every member was just like me? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. And we'll look at a few different verses and a few different questions that I want to ask you along those lines this morning. But let's pray and we'll look at a few things here. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for an opportunity to, to open up your word as always. God, this is a privilege that we don't take lightly. At least I hope we don't take it lightly, God. I, I pray that you'd help us to, uh, to, to treasure and to cherish the word of God. And above everything, God, I pray that you would be honored and glorified in our church, in our lives, in our families, in, in the ministries here, in everything that we do. I pray that your name would be lifted up because of it. And as we talk about these things this morning, God, I pray that you'd convict our hearts in the areas that we need to change, the things that we need to do better. And God, uh, again, for your glory. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First question I want you to, to ask you this morning is this, and turn over to Proverbs chapter 18, is how friendly would this church be if everybody was as friendly as you were? I'm thankful that we have a friendly church. I really do think that our church is very friendly, and that's one thing that when people come to visit, that's one of the things that they say, and boy, I felt like I've been there my entire life, and I love that. We ought to be open. We ought to be friendly with people who come in and visit. Uh, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 18 and verse number 24, a man that hath friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. That honestly should be one of the marks of this church, that we're friendly. You know, I wonder how many people are put off by Christianity because they knew a Christian who was not nice. They knew a Christian who was not kind. Right? We, might, we might use the excuse that we're having a bad day. I've used that excuse before. Listen, there are a lot of people who would love to have your bad day. Uh, I've said this before, but think about uh, you know, if, if, if you were able to bring all of your problems and, and come up here and lay them down at the altar and pick up somebody else's problems, I think most of us would probably gladly grab our problems and take them back to our seat. There's a lot of people who are going through things that are a whole lot more difficult than what you're going through. And I know when you're going through it, it it's not easy, it's not enjoyable, it's not pleasant, but uh, it, it, uh, we, we have it so much better than we think we do. We have it so much better than we could have it. One of the marks of friendliness is love and compassion. That's one of the things that set Jesus apart, even from his disciples, honestly. They always seem to want to send people away. How many times did we see that, you know, in, in the stories, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that, you know, people would come to Jesus and the disciples would say, ah, get these guys out of here, you know, they need food, they need rest, they need, you know, Jesus is busy, he's tired, send them away. And how many times do we find that Jesus had compassion on them? He always said to suffer them to come unto him. We stood in Israel in the place where Jesus looked out over the city of Jerusalem and wept with compassion over that city. Jesus loved people. And obviously, just, just as there are in our day, there was plenty of people in Jesus' day who were, who were filled with sin. I mean, there was idolatry in that city. There was all kinds of things that, that, that brought disdain, uh, probably, in the mind of Jesus Christ. But he still looked out them, and, and the reason why is because they were as sheep having no shepherd. And they needed something beyond what they were for themselves, beyond what they had, and that was they needed Jesus Christ. And he didn't say, oh, these people are worthless Oh, these people are a lost cause. Oh, these people, they, they're rejecting me. You know what? Fine, I'll reject them too. No, even as they were rejecting him, and even though he knew that he was going to be ultimately despised and rejected of men, they knew, he knew they were going to put him on a cross in just a short time. He knew that he was going to be whipped and beaten by these same people that he had compassion on. He knew that they were going to hang him on a cross, and yet he wept over the city of Jerusalem because they were as sheep having no shepherd. 
Over and over, we see that Jesus was moved with compassion. We ought to love the unlovable. By the way, what makes somebody to be considered unlovable? What makes us considered to be lovable? You know, when you talk about, when you say a term like that, love the unlovable, what, what makes you lovable, right? We're all in the same boat. We're all, we're all sinners. What makes us think that we're so lovable ourselves? But there's nothing that makes me more lovable to God because I'm in church. There's only two types of sinners. There's saved sinners and there's lost sinners. But we're all sinners. We all stand before God in the same way. John 3.16 is still true no matter what category you fall into. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That means that God loves every single person whether you've accepted him or whether you've rejected him. Now, obviously, if you've rejected Jesus Christ and you continue to reject Jesus Christ until you die, then there is going to be an accounting for that. But we ought, not to we ought to despise the sin, but we ought to love the sinner. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He didn't put up with their sin. He overturned the money changers, and we saw the place where that happened. And, and by the way, I have to apologize because I was planning to get into this whole series on Bible geography and all of this stuff very soon after we got back. And, of course, tonight is our church music night. Next Sunday night, uh, Brother Jason Brothers, he preached. My, he's my brother-in-law, but he preached for you on that Sunday night when we were gone, and he's getting ordained next week. And so they've asked me to be a part of the ordination service and preach the message. So I'm not going to be here next Sunday night either, so we'll have to pick it up the Sunday night after that. I'm looking forward to that. It's a, I think it's a great thing for us to know and to understand and, and to see where all these things happen. But we stood in the place and we looked at the place where Jesus more than likely overturned the money changers in the temple. Jesus did not put up with their sin. But how many times do we see that he was moved with compassion on those sinners? We think that because we're happy that they're in church that we love them. We think that because we tolerate them, that we love them. Love is not a noun. Love is a verb. It's an action. Love is an action. Loving sinners mean, means we're trying to reach them. We're trying to warn them. We're trying to show them that they need Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's not just being nice to somebody. It's warning them. How much do you have? I've said this a couple times in the last couple weeks. How much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them that they're on their way to hell? If you know that that's where they're going. The way that you show that you love them is to tell them, hey, I don't want you to go to that place of torment. I don't want you to go and spend an eternity in the lake of fire. And I've got to warn you. I've got to tell you before it's too late. That's what true love is. And so many times we say, well, you know, I love that person, so I'm just going to stay away from their sin. I'm just not going to tell them about that. Or, you know, I, I don't want to offend them by telling them that they need Jesus Christ So because I love them. No, you don't love them. You hate somebody if you won't tell them that they're going to a place that's going to cause an eternal destruction of their soul, and you won't tell them that. Loving sinners means we're trying to reach them in the best way that we can and the best way that we know how. You being friendly, your being friendly might just be exactly what somebody needs to make them realize that a Christian is what they want and need to become. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Friendliness is characterized by love and compassion, and we ought to have love and compassion on the lost, but we should also have love for the brethren. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 22, and there's a lot of verses that talk about this, love one another, but First Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 says, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. That doesn't leave a lot of room for error, does it? It doesn't leave a lot of room for misunderstanding. Love one another with a pure heart fervently. 
One day a teacher asked her students to list the names of all the students that were in the class. And she said, leave a blank after every student's name. And so they, they all listed those names out. And she said, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of the nicest thing you could say about every single person in this classroom. You left a blank underneath their name, write the nicest thing that you can think about that person underneath their name. And they took the rest of that class period to do that, but at the end of the class, they all turned in those, uh, those sheets of paper with all those nice things that they said about all those kids in their class. And the teacher took all of those things and compiled them onto a couple pieces of paper. And the next day, the next, that was on a Friday, on Monday when they came back to school, she gave each one of those students that paper with all of those nice things that all the rest of the students had said about them. And there was a lot of whispers throughout the classroom, you know, really? You know, so I, I never knew that I meant anything to anyone. I never knew that that's what that person thought about me. And they never really talked about those papers after that. It was never really mentioned in the classroom again, but uh, that class moved on. Nobody ever really talked about it. They never discussed it, you know, in their class or anything like that amongst themselves. They never, the teacher never heard anything else about it again. But several years later, one of those students was killed in Vietnam. And his teacher went to the funeral. He was a very special student, and, and a lot of them it hadn't been that long since they had been out of high school, so a lot of them still kept in touch and knew each other. And the church was packed with friends, and, and one by one, the people who loved this young man that had been killed there took, took a last walk by the coffin and, and paid their respects. And the teacher was the last one to do that. She was the last one to walk by the coffin of that young man. And as she stood there, one of the soldiers that was acting as the pallbearer said, uh, asked her, were, were you Mark's math teacher? And she said, yes, I was. And she, he said, well, he talked about you all the time. I just thought you'd like to know that. And after the funeral, most of Mark's former classmates got together and, and they had a little uh, lunch together to, to just spend some time, you know, uh, reminiscing about the good old days. And Mark's mom and dad were there and, and they were, it was pretty obvious that they wanted to talk to that teacher. And so they came up to that teacher there at the lunch and they said, we want to show you something. And, and his dad, he took, he took uh, his wallet out of his pocket, and he opened his wallet up, and they found this on Mark when he was killed, is what he told the teacher. And he pulled out these two little tattered pieces of paper. And the teacher knew exactly what it was right away. And they had been taped, and they were very worn, and she could tell that, that uh, they had been used a whole lot. And she said, that, and Mark's mom said, thank you so much for doing that. As you can see, it was something that Mark treasured a whole lot. And all of Mark's former classmates started to gather around, and there was a kid named Charlie, and he kind of smiled a little sheepishly, and he said, I still have my list, too. It's in the top drawer of my dresser at home. Chuck's wife said, Chuck asked me to put his list in our wedding album. Another, another uh, uh, girl said, I, I still have mine, too. It's in my diary. And another classmate that was there reached into her pocketbook, and she took out those two pieces of paper that she had with all of those things that had been written about her all of those years before. And what they found out is that just about every single one of those kids that had those two pieces of paper with all the good things written about them still had them to that very day. Some of them even carried them with them in their wallet. It meant a lot to them. That's where the teacher finally sat down and cried. She cried for Mark. She cried for all of his friends that she was never going to see again. But, you know, we tend to be so good at coming up with the right thing to say to humiliate somebody. And we're not very good at coming up with the right thing to encourage or to comfort somebody. Mostly that's what they need. You know, we're not going to make an impact in this, in this world. We're not going to make an impact on our church by finding the right insults, coming up with the right thing to say to just really drive the dagger into somebody. You know, sometimes people, are, people will, will not remember what you say. They might not remember even what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. 
And that's exactly what our goal ought to be when it comes to being around the brethren in our church. How do you make other people feel, right? Uh, there wouldn't be a lot of the fighting that we see amongst brethren in a lot of our churches. There wouldn't be a lot of feelings hurt and people offended if we were loving people with a pure heart fervently. And I'm so thankful that in our church we have, I do think we have a, a good brotherly bond between everybody here. I hope it always stays that way. I don't know what the Lord has for our church. I think at some point, and, and we're, we're seeing growth happening now, and I believe we'll grow to be a bigger church. I want to keep that small church feel. I hope we never get so big that we forget people. I hope we never get so big that we forget what our purpose is. And, 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 and by God's grace, we never will get to that point. But friendliness and love for the brother and genuine care and concern for the lost, that ought to be characteristics of a godly church. How friendly would this church be if everyone was as friendly as you? Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 because the second question that I want to ask you is this. How forgiving? How forgiving would this church be if everyone was as forgiving as you are? In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets when you're behaving as if you loved someone, you'll presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you'll find your dislike, yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you'll find yourself disliking him less. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, I think, sums all of that up. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. How can we not forgive somebody else when we've seen what Christ has forgiven us of? Boy, I was a dirty, rotten, low-down sinner, and I still am, and he still continues to forgive me every single time I come and ask him for forgiveness. He doesn't say, well, that one's a little rough. I don't know if I can forgive that. No, he doesn't have any questions about it. He forgives us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We see the story in the Bible of that man who, who owed a, a debt, a large debt, to, to somebody that he had taken a loan out from. And it was a debt that he would never be able to repay. And this man, he, he, he came to, to this master and he said, hey, this is that I can't repay this debt. Can you, can you do something about it? And he forgave him of that entire debt. And that man whose debt had just been forgiven turned around and went to somebody who owed him a few dollars and said, I'm putting you in a pauper's prison until you pay me what you owe me. Boy, what a, what a lack of discernment. What a lack of, of uh, understanding of just what he had been forgiven from. It's hard to hate somebody for something that they've done to you that you've forgiven. Right? They're, they're, you know, there's a lot of things that people do to us that may be things that we could get upset at. Or things that we may say, how could somebody do that to me? But if you've forgiven it to them, it's hard to be mad at somebody for something that you've already forgiven them for. I use the illustration of Christ having that compassion, but think of what he endured on the cross. Yet he forgave them for what they did. As he was hanging on the cross with the spit still dripping off of his face, with the blood still dripping from his body, with that crown of thorns still on his head, with that taste of that vinegar still on his lips, with the nails still in his hands and still in his feet, with the whip marks and the raw flesh rubbing up against that cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If Christ can forgive those people, then how can we not forgive somebody else who says something that might offend us or does something that we think might be a little bit wrong? 
I listened to an interview from a man who had been wrongfully convicted, and, and very obviously so, of a murder that they said he committed when he was 18 years old. He was sentenced to 60 years in prison for this murder. And one of the deputies who worked on the case became sheriff. Because he never felt right about this conviction of this young man, he reopened that case. And a judge heard that case, and not only did he declare a retrial, the evidence was so overwhelming that he demanded that they, that they release him from jail that very afternoon. And so they let this man go. It's a true story. And the interviewer sat down with this man and asked him if he was upset with those who had essentially framed him and got him put in prison for all of those years. And he didn't spend 60 years in prison, but he had been in there for a good time. I think it was something like 20, 25 years that he had spent in prison. Could you imagine being 18 years old and being put in prison for 25 years? You've spent the best part of your life, uh, the, the, the majority of your youth in prison for something you know you didn't do. But he made it very abundantly clear that he had become a Christian and that he was saved. And he said he struggled with forgiveness at the beginning. But then he came to the conclusion that Jesus had forgiven him for so much more than what he had been accused of. Jesus was dying on the cross. There was no way that this man could not forgive those who had wronged him in the same way. He said it was sometimes a daily thing because it was hard to get over, but he forgave them for what they did. That's a Christian attitude. Oh, that we might be people of forgiveness. How friendly would this church be? How forgiving would this church be if everyone was just like you? But number three, how faithful would this church be? That's our theme this year, always faithful. Are you working on that? Have you made, a, have you made any steps to be more faithful in doing something this year that you've not done in the past? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. What if everyone came to church as much as you did? Would there still be a church here? If everybody came as much on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights as you did, would there be a Sunday night and a Wednesday night service? What if everyone was as faithful to knocking on doors and giving out the gospel as you are? Would anybody in this area hear the message of the gospel? What if everyone was as faithful to praying and faithful to Bible reading as you are? See, we can play the game because we know it's expected out of us. We know how to... We know how to work the system and, and make ourselves look good a lot of times. But we can make excuses all we want to for why we can't do this or that. But the question is, what if everyone was as faithful as you are? Hey, we have prayer meetings on Friday mornings once a month. What if everyone was as faithful to those prayer meetings as you were? We have prayer meetings on Wednesday night at 6.30. What if everybody was as faithful to that prayer meeting as you are? Would there be any of these ministries? What if everybody was as faithful to serve in the ministries as you are? Would there be ministries of this church? Would there be any kind of outreach? Truth is, we have some people that are faithful to those things, and that's why those ministries and those things still go on. But what if they decided, you know what, I'm going to be like that person, and I'm just going to stop doing this, or I'm going to stop doing that. I'm, I'm a little overworked. I'm a little too, I got a little too much going on. Hey, what if everybody was as faithful as you are? And, and I, I understand sometimes, especially with work and things that go on, you cannot be at every single thing that happens here at this church. But there's a lot of things that you probably could make time for if you actually said, I'm going to be faithful to this. Listen, you think about if somebody told you that you had to be uh, at, the, at the doctor's office at 6.30 every single Friday morning for the rest of this year, and we'll give you a million dollars. Guess what would happen? I don't care what's going on. I'm clearing my schedule. I'm going to be there every Friday morning at 630 because I want that million dollars. 
And every single one of us knows that that's the truth. We'd do whatever we had to do to be there to get a million dollars. Ah, money's not important. Yes, it is. You'd do it. You would do it if you knew you could get a million dollars. Now, let me ask you this. Why don't we want God's power in the same way? I'm not even asking you to come every single Friday morning at 6.30. We do it once a month. Once a month. And yet, we'd rather have a million dollars than God's power? I'd rather have a million dollars than God's blessing? I'd rather be at the doctor's office at 6.30 in the morning every Friday morning this year than to be with God's faithful men who are there praying that God would do something in this church and in this country? How faithful would you be if you knew that Jesus Christ was going to be there at that prayer meeting? Would you show up? Oh, I'd be there if Jesus Christ was going to be there. No, you wouldn't. Because he's there. And you don't show up. And I'm not, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just trying to help you get to the point where you realize, I'm a faithful church member. Maybe not. Maybe not. What other things can you be involved in that you should be involved in that you're not? There's a lot of things that we do in this church to try to get the message of the gospel out. We have a responsibility to do that. And I don't want to do that unless we have God's power. And it takes being there to pray while I pray on my own. That's great. You should be praying on your own. But we are a family of families. This is a church that has gotten together for the sake of of being together in brotherly love and, and harmony and in the, in the very institution that Jesus Christ gave his life for. He gave his life for the church. He loved the church and he gave himself for it. That's what the Bible says. You ought to love it the same way that he does. Well, there's things in that church that I don't like. There's things about that pastor that I don't like. Then come and change them. You start being what this church needs and I guarantee you, you're going to rub off on other people. Well, I'm just going to stay away because you know what? There's issues there. Come change the issues. You get faithful, you can have an impact. Staying away is not going to make a difference. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 2 says this. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. We're all stewards of the talents and the abilities, and the money, and the time, and on and on that God's given us. Sure doesn't sound like a suggestion to me on whether or not we're going to faithfully use what God's given us. He said it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Because the second, the fourth thing that I want to ask you is how free-hearted would this church be if everybody was as free-hearted as you are? By that I mean this, how, how giving would this church be if everyone gave like you did? Oh, here we go again, talking about money. If you haven't noticed, God's doing just fine taking care of his church. And if that's your mindset, then he probably did it without you. Somebody said this, I heard a pastor say this in a message one time, and it stuck with me. He said, don't get nervous when I start talking about tithing. I haven't even started talking about your money yet. <laughs> right? The tithe belongs to God. How hard is it for us to give 10% of that back to him? And honestly, you ought, to be given all, you ought to be given more than 10%. The Bible talks about tithes and offerings. And I, it's something that you, ought to, that you ought to be praying about. It's something that you ought to be asking God about. I, I don't know if you figured this out yet or not, but you cannot outgive God. 
The more you give to God, the more he gives back to you. And the thing is, we're not doing it because we're trying to get back. Well, let's see. If I give God 25% this month, then maybe he'll give me back 30% and I can make my bills, right? That's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because we love him and we love his work and we love his minute, and we love his church and we want to see it go forward. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. By the way, I get 10% of everything that comes in extra. No, I'm kidding. I don't. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 6 says this, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. I wonder how many times over the course of, of, of uh, last 2,000 years of the church that people have said, oh, I don't want to give this money, but I will because God told me to. <laughs> Imagine what I could do with this money if I just had it to use for myself. That's giving grudgingly, right? God gives us the other 90% to do whatever we want to do with and says 10% belongs to him. That's not a hard thing for him to ask of us, right? What if God said, I'll give you 10%, you give me 90, right? Imagine how we'd feel then. When he's simply asking us to give a small amount. God gave us everything when he gave us Jesus Christ. Can we not be willing to give back to him so that the world might be able to hear what Jesus Christ did for us? Right? I can tell you this. God does not need your money. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills. Right? All these people over here asking $5 million for this property think they own it. That's not their property. It belongs to God. And if he wants to take it from them and give it to his church, he can do it in a heartbeat. It's not theirs, it's his. Everything belongs to him. And yet, we think, oh, God's just, he just wants my money. No, God, God can do it without you. And he's done it without many people up to this point. I'm not saying that our church is not giving. We have a very giving church, and I'm thankful for that. I'm saying there's a lot of people who, who could come into the church and could give that don't. God gets along just fine without it. You need to give for you. You, if you want God's blessing on your life, then you need to give for the sake of having that blessing on your life. God doesn't need it. And if every person in this church stopped giving today, God's church would still go forward because he's going to take care of it. It's his church. Now, he uses us to do it. He gives us, uh, he, he, he puts things on our hearts to give to special, to, to missions, to the building, to a lot of these other different things. God uses people to do that. But if every single person in this church stopped giving today, God would use somebody else somewhere to make his church continue to go on. I'm not worried about that at all. It all belongs to him. And I already mentioned that he, he provided this place for us and he furnished it and he's done a whole lot of other things here in this place as well. And he'll do the same thing again. I don't care what it costs. It doesn't, it's nothing to God. He'll continue to work in his church, but God's made a way for you to receive a blessing by giving to him and to his work. What a great deal that is, right? You give to God, you give him uh, with, a, with a, a happy heart and a willing heart, and God's going to bless you for it. What a deal. <laughs> what a deal. And that's, that's coming from the, the most insured bank in the universe, right? I just heard about the second largest bank in Silicon Valley collapsed this week, and the FDIC had to come in and take over, and all these people are wondering, where's my money at, Right? Hey, the best bank in the universe, eternity, eternal things, is what we can give toward. How friendly, how forgiving, how faithful, how free-hearted would this church be if everyone was just like you in those areas? But turn over to Romans chapter 12, because the fifth thing I want to ask you is this. How on fire for God 
would this church be if everybody was on fire for God in the same way that you are? How is your desire to please God? Do you truly desire to see souls saved and lives changed? Do you truly desire to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? Romans chapter 12 and verse 11, the end of that verse says, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. How holy would this church be if everyone in this church was as holy as you are? Think about that. Would this church be filled with people whose true, strong desire is to please God? Or would it be filled with a whole church full of half-hearted Christians? Just, eh, it's important, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be there when I can. I'll do what I can to be right with God. If everyone's life was as full or as empty of sin as your life is right now, would this place be a place where God would feel comfortable meeting with his people? It's a command to be holy, you know. Well, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 15. Turn there if you can get there, but he says this, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. For it is written, be ye holy as I am holy. How holy is God? Perfect. He's absolutely sinless. God tells us to be as holy as God is. That means that every single one of us still has a whole lot of work to do in our lives. And if we're not actively trying to get to that point, then we are failing in what we've been commanded to do. The problem with so many of us is that we want to have God, but we want to keep one foot in the world at the same time so we can go back to it when we want to. That's not true Christianity. We want to be able to say that we serve God, but we want to keep that connection to the world. We have to have its music. We have to have its money. We have to have its entertainment. We have to have its movies. That's not being holy, and that's not being on fire for God. 99% of the movies that are being produced in our world today are not pleasing to God. Well, it just had a little bit of cussing in it. It just had a little bit of people that were not dressed right. It just had a little bit of, you know, wild music in it. Is it what's too much? Well, that one only had 10 cuss words. If it had 11, I wouldn't have watched it. I'd have turned it off at the 11th cuss word, right? Well, the first time I saw somebody that was not dressed right, I'll let it go. But after, after 10 times, I've got to stop. I, can't, I just can't do it anymore, right? Hey, you have, to, you have to make it a point to not watch the things that you should not be watching. We use a little thing called IMDb. I think it stands for International Movie Database or something like that. You can go in there and you can look up any movie and you can see if it has cursing in it, if it has things that are inappropriate in it. You can see that. And if, and if you see that it has something in there that, that, that is inappropriate, like a single cuss word, well, it's only one cuss word. You shouldn't watch it. Would, would, you, would you bring somebody into your home with your children sitting around there and say, now, Here's the rules. You can only cuss 10 times while you're sitting here in this conversation. You can only take this many clothes off while you're sitting here in our living room. No, you wouldn't do that. You would be a fool to say that. But then you're going to bring it into your living room and gather everybody around it and say, well, it only had 10 cuss words in it, so it's okay. They only took most of their clothes off, so it's okay. They were still covered a little bit. Right? How foolish does that sound when you say that, but yet we bring it into our homes and we feed it to our children and we tell them it's okay. It's not okay. It's not holiness. It's not godliness. It's not righteousness. 
It's not being holy. It's not being on fire for God. And we're never going to have revival in this nation until Christians once again get on fire for God. There's a story that was told about a man who bought a new radio and he brought it home and he set it on top of the refrigerator. He plugged it in and he turned to the radio station, WSM in Nashville. It's the home of the Grand Ole Opry. He got it tuned in. And this is back in the day when you couldn't just type the dial in there and get it exactly where you wanted. You had to, you know, use a little knob to get it to where it come in perfectly clear. And he got it to where it was nice and clear. And, you know, he could hear the Grand Ole Opry. And he, he went up to that radio and he pulled all the knobs off the radio. And, then, and, and a friend came over and said, that's a brand new radio. Why don't you have any knobs on it? He said, that's the only radio station I want to listen to. And it's tuned into it. And I don't ever want it to get changed. Pulled all the knobs off the radio. And honestly, that's what we ought to be doing with our lives when it comes to Jesus Christ, right? Tune into him, all we ever want to hear, all we ever expect to hear, and limit that to that one station, the Holy Spirit speaking to you. If we would just tune in to the only, only the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives, we could, we could make a big difference in this world for Jesus Christ. Would to God that we'd be willing to tune out the things that the world's trying to offer us Tune into exactly what God wants us to do, and then do it. Lastly and quickly, children of Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. I asked you how friendly would this church be if everyone was as friendly as you are? How forgiving, how faithful, how free-hearted, how on fire for God would this church be if everybody was on fire the way you are today? But the last thing that I want to ask you is this. How fruitful would this church be if everyone was as fruitful as you are? When's the last time you led somebody to Christ? When's the last time you led somebody to Christ? When's the last time you shared the gospel? We were just having a conversation yesterday. It's a lot harder to lead somebody to Christ today because of all the back baggage and all the backgrounds that they have. It used to be that a lot of people grew up in vacation Bible schools and Sunday school and at least had a little bit of knowledge of the Bible, and it's very, very rare to find that today. But I get opportunities all the time. And you have to make opportunities. Hey, let's sit down for lunch. Let's have a conversation. And I get opportunities all the time to sit down and go through the gospel with somebody for two or three hours. And just because they don't accept it doesn't mean that it's not doing any good. We have an opportunity to follow up with them and follow up with them and follow up with them. And I've been able to lead people to Jesus Christ. We have to continue doing that. But how fruitful would this church be if everyone was as fruitful as you are? And I'm not asking you, when's the last time you invited somebody to church? I'm asking you, when have you told somebody that without Jesus Christ they're going to spend an eternity in hell? When's the last time you told them that they needed to have their sins forgiven by Jesus Christ? It's good to invite people to church. But more than that, we need to invite them to Christ. They could spend, uh, and, 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 and sadly, there's been people that have spent 50 years in church and still did not come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. There's people who are leading churches that don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior all across this nation. The Bible makes that very clear when he says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name done many wonderful works? And he's going to say, I never knew you. Who do you think he's talking about? He's talking about people that are leading churches in this nation today. Don't know Jesus Christ. Coming to church has nothing to do with whether you're a Christian or not. Coming to Christ is what does. Billy Sunday said going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you a car. And that's exactly the truth. You can come to church your entire life. 
But until you come to Christ, and we can invite people to church our entire lives, but until we invite them to Jesus Christ, we're not making an impact. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 18. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. What if everyone was as concerned about souls as you are? Would anyone ever get saved? Would anyone ever visit this church? Oh, that we'd be a friendly, forgiving, faithful, free-hearted, on-fire, fruitful church. That doesn't happen because we want it to be that way. It happens because everybody that makes this church up does those things. I don't want God to look down with his blessings in his hand and say, fine, take them. I don't really want to bless you, but I've got them here, and this is my church, so here, take the blessings, whatever. And I'm not trying to overcharacterize God, but I don't want him to give us blessings grudgingly. I don't want, to have him, I don't want him to have to say, well, I don't really want to do this, but because... Uh, for the sake of the, you know, the gospel and for the sake of this being my church here, take it, right? I want God to look down at Mount Victory Baptist Church and say, what a, what a friendly group of people. They love each other, and boy, do they love the souls of the lost. What a forgiving bunch of people they are. What a, what a faithful group they have there in that church. They're always ready to worship. They're always ready to serve me. What a, what, what a congregation that's on fire for God. What a free-hearted group. I, I keep trying to give them more and more, and they keep giving it back. What a fruitful group of Christians. I want to bless them. I want to find more blessings that I can give them. I want to send more people their way because I know they're going to be faithful in helping them to become uh, solid Christians that can go out and do more things for Jesus Christ uh, and, and, and how they handle the things that I'm entrusting them with. I want to give them more. Isn't that how you want God to look at our church? That's how I want him to see it. It's not going to happen if we rely on everyone else to be the reason that God blesses this place. We have to be the reason that God blesses this place. And that's how we have to see it if we want God to do something. And so I'll end with the same question that I started with this morning. What type of church would this church be if all the members were just like thee? And to bring it closer to home the way we did at the beginning as well. What type of church would this church be if all the members were just like me? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for allowing us to be here in this place. What a tremendous group of people you've brought together. And I, I'm not just saying that. I don't take it lightly. I don't take it for granted. You've given us a great group of people here. But God, I can only imagine how much more you want to use us and how much more you can do through us if we'd work on the areas that you convicted us about this morning. What tremendous potential we have right here in this building. What tremendous potential we have with the young people that are here in this building this morning to grow up and do something for you with their lives, to do something for you with their lives right now, the same way that we can in this church. God, I pray that you convict our hearts and where there is conviction, God, I pray that you give us the boldness to act on those things. I pray that you give us the strength and the determination to just be right with you, to live holy, to spread the message of the gospel, 
to do what's right so that you can bless us. God, I pray that it would be a whole church full of people that are just faithful to doing what you've called us to do, faithful to using the talents and the abilities that you've given us, faithful to spreading the message of the gospel. And God, I pray that you would be in a position in heaven where you can look out and say, oh, I can't wait to bless them more because of what they're doing. Not for pride's sake, God, but for exactly what we mentioned at the very beginning. And to Jesus Christ be glory in the church. And God, may it all be done so that your name would be lifted up. And may we do everything we can, not just in our services, but in our own individual lives and our families. May your name be glorified. May your name be lifted up. And may God get all the glory. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you